If you have a Bible with you, please take it and turn to the Gospel of John, chapter 12. The Gospel of John, chapter 12. If you are new to Covenant Presbyterian Church, it's typically our practice to preach through books of the Bible. And we are currently in a series through this wonderful portion of God's Word, the Gospel of John. Now, if you'd like to follow along, but you don't happen to have a Bible with you, there should be one in a seat back in front of you or near you. Please feel free to take that and find your way to the Gospel of John. If you don't have a Bible, but you'd like to have a Bible, just take that one home with you. We'd love for you to have it. Um, we're going to take, for the month of January, we're going to take a one-month pause from John's Gospel, um, and we're going to... Uh, do a series of messages in the month of January uh, through Romans chapter 8. Um, Luther called it the greatest chapter in the Bible. Um, and if you're asking, Todd, you know, why Romans chapter 8? Um, because I want to. <laughs> Just want to. And I may not live long enough to preach through um, Romans. I may not live long enough to finish John. So I'm at least going to get Romans chapter 8, if, if the Lord will will it. Um, but that's what we'll do in January, and then after that we'll head back uh, to the Gospel of John. Well, if you're able, I would ask you to please stand as I read this portion of God's Word. John chapter 12, beginning in verse 20, going through verse 26. Remember what's happening. It is Passover. It is the final week of Jesus' life. He has just been welcomed into the city with a throng of people, probably numbering in the thousands, because at this point, in the first century, during Passover, uh, the crowds around Jerusalem, that city of about 50,000, its population would swell that week, anywhere from 120 to 250,000 people. And so many of them were wondering about this man who has just raised a dead man. And they were there to see Jesus. They were talking about Jesus. Some of them were ready to hail him as king, the one who would come into Jerusalem and drive out the Romans finally and deliver them from the hand of tyranny. And so they met him as he was walking towards Jerusalem. He sat upon a donkey's colt in fulfillment of scripture. And all of these people, probably numbering in the thousands, were crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Jesus enters into Jerusalem, and this is where we pick up, beginning in verse 20. This is God's unerring and life-giving word. Let's give it our full attention. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. This is God's word. Let's pray. And now, O oh Lord, we ask that you would grant us hearing and understanding of your word today. And that by your spirit, you would apply it to us so that where we need to be corrected, we would receive that. Where we need to be enlightened with knowledge, you would give us that. Where we need uh, to be rebuked and convicted of sin, we would receive that. Where we need to be encouraged and strengthened, O oh Lord, do that in us. 
We pray through Christ our Lord. Amen. You may have a seat. The people who originally sat under Jesus' teaching found that both his keen insight into the Word of God and the authority with which he taught were so compelling that it caused them, at minimum, to completely reevaluate their assessment of the teachers that they'd had, the rabbis that they'd had, the religious experts that they had sat under. So unique was Jesus' insight and his authority that the insight and authority of all other teachers at that time came into question. At times, the power of his teaching brought in large crowds, at times numbering in the thousands. At other times, his teaching was so confrontational and so effective at exposing the sins of the heart that those same crowds would walk away. And over and over, what we hear in Jesus' words is the mind of a genius at work. And I use that language very deliberately. Someone whose ability to diagnose the human heart, to understand the law and the promises of God, and the way in which he so skillfully wielded language makes him a singular figure in history. Especially when you consider that no one, not Aristotle, not Buddha, not Muhammad, not Confucius, not Newton, not Marx, not Freud, none of them have had the impact as this one man, Jesus. Not a single person in history can match the way in which Jesus' words translate right through ethnic barriers, right through cultural distinctives, right through the expanses of time and generations. The first century Jewish man, this man, who never traveled more than 30 miles away from his home and who was executed in his early 30s, spoke in such a way that his words are as relevant and insightful, as powerful and life-changing today as they were to those first century inhabitants of Jerusalem and Galilee and that whole area. There has not been a single generation in history in which Jesus' words have retreated or been lost or found irrelevant. First century Galileans, second century Greeks, fifth century North Africans, medieval Europeans, Polynesians and Pacific Islanders, hundreds and millions across China and the Korean Peninsula, sub-Saharan Africans, the whole breadth of Latin America, And of course, right here, 21st century America, rich and poor, Eastern and Western, ancient and contemporary, sophisticated and primitive, educated and illiterate, have all heard the same words from the same man and been moved by that insight and have responded to that authority. Call that an accident of human evolution if you want. Call that a chance collision of random historical events if you like. But the most reasonable response is to gather up all of that reality and call Jesus Lord. Here in chapter 12, John has recorded for us the final body of Jesus' public teaching. Here in the final week of his life, as he turns and faces the cross. 
John tells us that some Greeks were among those who went up to Jerusalem for the Passover. Now these were God-fearers, that is, Greeks or Gentiles, who had not necessarily become proselytes to Judaism, that is, they hadn't become Jews culturally. They had not received circumcision as the sign of the covenant. But they had come to, at minimum, be enamored by the monotheism of the Jews. This one God, God Almighty, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They had come to see the beauty of the moral law of God. And they had, at minimum, come very close now to worshiping and serving this God. And it's significant that just prior to the mention of these Gentiles, these Greeks, the Pharisees, in the very preceding verse, verse 19 that we saw last week, lament over the fact that, in their own words, the whole world has gone after him. Now look again at verse 21. What do these Greeks want? What do these Gentile God-fearers desire? They want to see Jesus. Now it's significant that the verbs for seeing often mean more in the Gospel of John than simple visual observation. In fact, the particular form of verb that John uses indicates that they were repeatedly asking to see Jesus. We want to see Jesus. Sir, we would see Jesus. We want to see Jesus. And as one commentator observes, it is likely that John is getting at the point that these Gentiles are now ready to be members of the flock of Christ. I can't help but love that little detail that John gives us in verse 22. These Greeks had come to Philip, one of Jesus' disciples. They'd recognized that he was close to Jesus, one of his inner circle. He had a Greek name, Philip, and so that might have been the reason why they chose him. And then look who joins in but Andrew. Andrew, we we know about Andrew from three different verses in John, and all three times he's bringing someone to Jesus. Don't you just just like Andrew? He doesn't, you know, I'm so glad that we don't hear the bad side of him, you know, like most of the other side. All we know about Andrew is that he just kept bringing people to Jesus. Now, he was a man just like any of us. He was a sinner just like any of us. And yet God sees fit to record these few details about this disciple. And what a reputation to have. What a thing to be written in your epitaph. He brought people to Jesus. She brought people to Jesus. Now look there at verse 23. Look at it again. And Jesus answered them. Well, who does he answer? Does he answer the Greeks who are asking them questions? Well, that's not... That's not explained. It seems most direct that he's speaking right here to Philip and Andrew. Uh, Whether or not he actually gave an audience to these Greeks, we don't know. That's never really explained. But what Jesus does here is he seizes upon this detail that Gentiles want to see him, that Gentiles are there for him, that Greeks are there for him. And look at what he says. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And I think what John is doing there is he's connecting some dots for us. Now that it is clear that the world is going after him, the hour has come. And of course we know that in the Gospel of John, that language is used. His hour, that language is used to refer to Jesus' cross. His appointment with the executioner. The time has come now. Now that 
they can see with their own eyes that God's ancient promise to Abraham, his covenant, that he would make from Abraham's seed a holy nation, a kingdom of priests made up of men and women from all the peoples of the world, now that that is literally being fulfilled in their sight at that Passover, Jesus says, now it's time. Now the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Now that term Son of Man is one of Jesus' favorite ways to refer to himself. He is God in the flesh, and he is also the Son of Man. He has been born of human flesh. He has taken on the nature of a servant. But it's interesting that the Son of Man doesn't just refer to the humanity of Jesus. In fact, any good Jew at that time who had been schooled in their own scriptures, would have recognized that title as a royal title. Going back to the vision that God gave Daniel in Daniel chapter 7, where Daniel has this vision of this great and mighty person, one who he says appears as a son of man. But it's clear that what he is describing is a divine figure, someone who is sent by God, but who himself has all of the appearance of God himself. It's a a strange and mysterious thing that outside of Trinitarian categories, you can't really understand. And so Jesus takes that very title that the prophet gave to this divine figure, and he applies it to himself. Now is the hour for the Son of Man, this divine figure, this one who is sent by God to be with you. Now it's time for him to be glorified. And of course, left to ourselves, we would think that means to sit upon a throne to be crowned with gold and to have a holy scepter placed in his hand, to with a word judge and drive out the Romans and defeat all of their enemies. That's what we would naturally think is the Son of Man being glorified. But what we know from this gospel and what we know from the actions of Jesus himself is that the hour for the Son of Man to be glorified means his coronation upon a cross and his being crowned with thorns and is having a reed of mockery placed in his hand, his clothes stripped from his back, a mocking purple tunic placed upon him, and another sign of mockery above his head, the king of the Jews. That's what his hour of glorification was, because it was in that moment when he would ransom sinners from every nation, tribe, language, and people, every generation before him since Adam, and every generation to come until he returns again. He is ransoming sinners for God on that cross, high and lifted up, where he will draw the nations to himself. That's the moment of his glory. And then in verse 24, Jesus introduces us to this short little parable an analogy. He opens it up with that, you know, kind of term of formality, verily, verily, or truly, truly. And he gives us the analogy of, of this seed, and it points to the nature of the salvation that Jesus wins for us. That the way of our life, the way of eternal life for us, comes through the death of our Savior. He is, Jesus says, like a seed which goes into the ground and dies, but from his death, an enormous amount of life will spring forth. Um, 
for several years we lived outside of, of Philadelphia, and we had several very large, beautiful, mighty oak trees in our yard. Now, oak trees are wonderful. They're strong. They're not junk trees. They don't fall apart in every storm. They're great. And then there's acorn season. And if you've ever had big oak trees in your yard, you know what that means. That means it begins to rain acorns down on your house. And it sounds like you're in the middle of a terrible hailstorm. And then you've got to get out in your yard and rake all of those babies up. And I mean, we're talking thousands and thousands of acorns. Our neighbors would get out, our neighbors who knew a lot more than we did, would get out these big giant vinyl tarps and lay them across their yard. And all of the acorns would fall, and then they'd start dragging those tarps out. And because we were slow on the uptake, um, we didn't do any of that. And so I'm out in the yard for days just raking and raking these thousands and thousands of acorns. And of course, you don't get all of them that way. And then finally, you see these little oak saplings start sticking up throughout your yard. And you can run the the mower over them, but they're going to keep coming. You've got to get in there and dig up that acorn. And what you find when you dig up that little acorn from that little bitty oak seedling is that what once was an acorn is almost all gone now. It doesn't look anything like it did before. It's sloughed off off its outer shell, and it's become something different. And it, with enough time, is going to become something huge and mighty and strong, and it's going to ruin somebody else's yard with all of the acorns one day. And you know that that's happening from that one little seed. Now, if I take that acorn and put it on my mantle, because I think it's neat, it's just going to sit there and it'll never do anything. But according here to Jesus' parable, we all know what happens. You let it hit the ground, you let it get into the soil, and and, and it becomes something that You'd never believe could come out of it. Well, Jesus is is playing on this. Jesus isn't giving us a biology lesson. He knows that that a seed doesn't literally like die in the soil, and yet it, it is something very much like a death. It goes into the ground. It's buried. It germinates, which is something that looks very much like a death. And then it grows, and it grows, and it grows, and it grows. Jesus saying, "That's that's what I'm doing." That's what my death is going to mean when you see me on the cross, when you see me die, when you see me taken down and put into the tomb. Remember this. Remember the seed that goes into the ground and dies. And then life comes up. Remember that. Of course, the fact that the Messiah had to die to accomplish his mission was precisely what created such confusion and really such anger on the part of so many of the people. They wanted a king who would restore their honor. They wanted a Messiah who would restore to them their national pride and independence. But what they got was the Messiah, King, Savior, who knew that their sin was a far worse tyrant than even Rome. And they couldn't see it because they couldn't see their sin. And because they couldn't see their sin, they couldn't see their need. Because they couldn't see their need, they couldn't see their Messiah. And it's the same that's true today. Try to tell someone the good news of Jesus Christ without them understanding that they are sinners and it will not make any sense. Because you see, without sin, I don't need a Savior to die in my place. I don't need a propitiation to carry upon Himself the wrath of God that I deserve. Those are are categories that are far outside my grasp if I don't understand sin. What I need is a a good moral example that I can follow, someone with some good, wise teachings that I can apply to my life periodically if they fit. 
What I don't need and what I don't want is a Savior to whom I must believe, to whom I must fall down and cry out for mercy. It takes far more humility to believe in Jesus as Savior than it does to believe in Jesus as my heavenly self-help guru. The former requires humility and brokenness and recognition of my sin. The latter requires me to think rather highly of myself. And I'm good at one and not the other. The message of the cross continues to confound and confuse and offend people to this day. But to those who are being saved, the message of the cross is the power and the wisdom of God. Now, after teaching his hearers about his hour of death and what his death will accomplish, Jesus now turns his attention to those who would follow him. And he does something quite remarkable here. He takes the cross, he takes the message of his death for sinners, and he applies it now to those who believe in him. He applies it to his disciples. Not because we die in the way that Jesus dies or we do what Jesus did, no. None of us here will ever be the sacrifice for anyone else's sins. No one here will ever die for someone in the way that Jesus died for us. But there is an analogical comparison in that Jesus' life of self-sacrifice for the good of the lives of others now becomes a pattern for his disciples to follow themselves. And in helping us understand this, Jesus gives us some paradoxes here. Now, a paradox is a statement which at first seems like a contradiction. But in deeper inspection, we realize that it's not only not a contradiction, but it's actually something with great harmony. And that's what Jesus does for us here in verses 25 and 26. He gives us a couple of paradoxes. I say a few. There's like three paradoxes, but they're so closely related. It's also, in a sense, just one. But look look at what he says. This first little clause in verse 25. Whoever loves his life loses it. Now, right here, Jesus is taking, he's going immediately from his analogy of the seed to now speaking to his disciples about what we do, how we live. And he says, whoever loves his life loses it. So he's just spoken about his own death, the seed that's going to go into the ground and yield forth life and blessing and salvation for so many people. Now he says, now there's a sense in which you, my followers, there's a sense in which you lose your life also. Again, we don't lose our life the way Jesus does. Or for the purpose that Jesus does. But there is a sense in which that sort of abandonment to loss, the abandonment of our own self-regard has to take hold. And it's a paradox. You, you, You love your life, so if you love your life, then you need to lose it. That's a paradox that doesn't seem to hold true. And yet in further inspection, as we understand the economy of God's grace, it starts to make perfect sense. Now, Jesus has said this elsewhere. In fact, all four gospel writers record him as saying this very same thing. Matthew chapter 10, for instance. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Matthew chapter 16. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. 
Mark chapter 8. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. And then Luke chapter 17. Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. Now, first of all, let the weight of that settle on you. Let let the the confrontation there, let the the clear nature of Jesus' words stand next to our heart and let it make us feel uncomfortable. It's supposed to. Now, Jesus is not calling for his followers to wish for death. Nor is he implying that we should not do what is reasonable to take proper care of ourselves. One of the great sources of tragedy in our day is the marked increase of self-destructiveness among so many, especially the young. The The second leading cause of death among teenagers through people in their 20s, the second leading cause of death is suicide. And here's where we see this tremendous contradiction within the world. And I want to say this very gently, but it's this. Self-destructiveness is often not about thinking nothing of yourself, but is the result about thinking about nothing else other than yourself. In other words, you don't see the beauty anymore of the world of God's creation. You can't even listen to music anymore because all you're doing is thinking about yourself, your condition, your circumstances, however bad they might legitimately be. You don't see hope. You don't hear laughter. You don't see people who love you. You don't see or appreciate or give thanks for the blessing in other people's lives. You don't see all of the people who will be crushed if you harm yourself. Because for whatever reason, you can't get your eyes off of yourself. You're in a place where all you can see is yourself in that moment. And it's a darkness that has a lot of different kinds of sources behind it, but it seems to always include a preoccupation with the self, not a neglect of the self. But Jesus is teaching us that the good life, The life that is blessed, the life that glorifies God, the life that bears fruit, the life that bears blessings for others is a life of self-forgetfulness. It's the sort of life that flows out of the disciple who is not feverishly seeking to make himself or herself happy all the time. It is the life that does not demand that everyone around you be your emotional custodian. Paradox is that the disciple loves his life properly when he or she loses it for the sake of others. We become a genuine means of blessing to those around us as we seek their good above our own. That's how we lose our lives, which is paradoxically paradoxically the way that we love our life. If you love life, if you love the gift of life that God has given you, then think less about yourself and more about others. Think less about yourself and more about the Lord. Think less about yourself and more about being a source of life for others. And that leads right into that very next clause, second half of verse 25. And whoever 
hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Now, if Jesus wanted to say something that would offend 21st century Americans even more than saying you have to lose your life, here it is. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Um, There's this little bitty book um, by Tim Keller, and it's about self-forgetfulness, like teeny little book. And um, I read it when it came out a few years ago, and he makes the observation that previous generations of people used to think that the cause or, or what was behind so much of our pathologies, crime, abuse, adultery, sexual immorality, all of that sort of stuff, what was behind that was people thought too highly of themselves. They wanted to serve themselves. They put their needs before anybody else or anything else. But he said there was a shift in contemporary culture where we decided, no, people do all those things. People steal, people rape, people kill, people betray their spouses, people steal, people behave in all kinds of bad pathological ways because they don't have a good enough self-esteem. And I think the previous generations had it right. Because the kind of humility that leads us to live a life that will be a blessing to others is a humility that leads us not to think less about yourself, but to think about yourself less. And whoever hates his life in this world, Jesus said, will keep it for eternal life. Now, now you know why so many of the people who would flock to Jesus at first ended up leaving. And it may well be that this is the very moment when the crowds who had just accompanied him rallied around him saying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. I would guess that if any of them are hearing these words that he is saying, they're starting to say, or maybe not. See, it's absolute heresy in our culture, this idea of hating your life. And again, as we've already seen, we're talking about a paradox here. Jesus is not talking about a hatred in the same sense that we think about self-loathing. And here's why. Because you will scarcely find a more self-focused person in your life than one who loathes themselves. Because they are all they think about. And they are all they want you to think about. The great late New Testament scholar Leon Morris gets it right. In commenting on Jesus' words here, he wrote, The man whose priorities are right has such an attitude of love for the things of God that it makes all all interest in the affairs of this life appear, by comparison, as hatred. So rather than seeking this world, rather than finding a way to make your life fit in this world so that you feel perfectly at home in this world, the follower of Jesus seeks the kingdom of God. Rather than seeking satisfaction in earthly treasure, the disciple seeks what is above to the extent that someone, an unbeliever, might be excused for thinking that you don't think highly enough of yourself. Now, hate is a word that Jesus uses to get our attention, and he does get our attention, doesn't he? 
He does this elsewhere. For instance, in Luke chapter 14, he said, you can't be my follower unless you hate your mother and father and your brothers and sisters. And some of you are thinking, man, that's a good life verse. I might, um... well, it is a good life verse if you're properly thinking about Jesus' words. You can't be my follower unless your love for the Lord, unless your loyalty to your Redeemer is to the extent that your love for your family, which is proper, looks like hatred by comparison. Now watch this. The assumption throughout the Bible is that we already love ourselves. When Jesus said, love your neighbor as yourself, some people hear that and they say, okay, you see, Jesus is giving us two commands there. First of all, we have to find a way to love ourselves. And then once we figure that out and really do it well, then we can love our neighbor. No. Because no one really has to work at it to love themselves. You never have to be taught to love yourself. A child comes out of the womb well-equipped to love him or herself. The assumption of the Bible and the assumption of Jesus is that we're very good at loving ourselves, thank you very much. And what Jesus is saying when he says, love your neighbor as yourself, what he's saying is, you know the way that you love yourself? You know, you think about yourself all the time. You make sure that all of your needs are met. You try to do everything you can to even satisfy all your desires. You really care about your feelings. You know all the ways that you love yourself? Do that for your neighbor. Do that for your neighbor. Even the person that goes around and says, I'm ugly, I'm untalented, I'm no good at anything, nobody loves me. Yes, even that person loves himself. He's his favorite subject. I think sometimes we gather around us people who want to tell us that we have to love ourselves because that's precisely what we want to hear. And we don't want to be told, no, your problem is that you are having a long-term, massive, passionate love affair with yourself. That's the problem. And even as I say that, some of you are going, you're being a jerk. Okay. But I think that's the problem. If our big problem that we were going to have to face is that we refuse to love ourselves, then we would find it somewhere in the Scripture. The warnings in Scripture over and over and over again are against our tendency to love ourselves above all else. And so following Jesus requires a very deliberate sort of self-abandonment, a very deliberate self-forgetfulness. Again, it's not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking about yourself less. It's learning to replace our native, endless focus on ourself with a focus upon Jesus and the people around us and the kingdom to come. Love the Lord. Love your neighbor. Love the life to come in the presence of God. Love that so much that it makes your attitude toward this life look like hatred to some of the people around you. And then verse 26, how, how does a disciple of Jesus, how is a disciple of Jesus honored? Here's how, by taking the lowest rung, by serving. See what he says in verse 26? If anyone serves me, 
he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Serve, 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 honor. It's just exactly the opposite of what the world will tell you of how to get honored, how to find honor. And Jesus says, you find honor in your heavenly Father's eyes when you keep finding yourself on the lower rung in service to others. It's a paradox, but that's how the economy of the kingdom works. And people who pursue the role of a servant will find themselves honored by their Father. Does that seem strange to you? I mean, again... We're not, all, we're not always good because we, we reject the prosperity gospel, and rightly so because it's heresy and it'll kill you, um, that sometimes we fail to mention the fact that God does bless and God does honor his people. I don't know exactly what that looks like for the Father to honor you. My guess is that it's really great. My guess is that being honored by your heavenly Father is infinitely better than being honored by me or anybody else in here. Jesus is saying, my disciples are servants. And they serve and they serve. Because of that, they will find themselves honored by the Father. And who are we most like when we serve? Is it not our Lord Jesus, who took upon himself the form of a servant, Philippians chapter 2, and humbled himself even to the point of death? Well, we... We love our life best when we lose it for the glory of God and the sake of others. We show that we have received eternal life and that we treasure life in the kingdom to come when when we hate our life by comparison. And we find the honor that our Heavenly Father has to bestow when we serve God. And serve and then serve again. This is the paradox of discipleship. This is the paradox of being a follower of Jesus. And brothers and sisters, if you're a Christian, that's what we've got to be pressing towards. Enough of bland religious sentimentality. This is the life we must pursue together as disciples of the Lord Jesus. In as much as we need to say no to ourselves, as we much as much as we need to stop seeking for ourselves, the Lord will confront us with this. And the Lord shocks us with the words that He uses, and He no doubt intends to shock us. Whoever loves his life loses it. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. These types of stark contrasts were a very typical approach to teaching in the Semitic world. It's a teaching technique used to arrest the hearer, a way of driving home a point before we can nuance all the power out of the words, a form of teaching that is common in Scripture. We see it throughout the Bible, and we certainly see it in the teachings of our Lord. Think, for example, again, of of when Jesus tells us about the necessity of hating our own family if we're to be his disciple. That's bold language. It's in our face. It exposes our heart. Now, God could have committed his written word to any language in the world. He could have committed it to any culture in the world. And he could have made it happen in any generation of his choosing. 
but he chose that his word would be given to us in Semitic languages, through Semitic cultures. The Old Testament, of course, is written in Hebrew. And Jesus, as so many of the Jews living in the uh, ancient Near East, spoke Aramaic. Now, Aramaic is a Syrian dialect with some affinities with Hebrew, but it's a Syrian dialect, and it is a Semitic language. And it ended up replacing Hebrew as the common language of the Jews in Judah by the first century, so that Jesus and the other Jews in that whole region spoke Aramaic. So you have the Old Testament written in Hebrew, the words of Jesus translated in Greek in the New Testament, originally spoken in Aramaic, another Semitic language. And here's why that matters. One scholar wrote that the Semitic languages are a reflection of, quote, a habitual cast of mind which calls for absoluteness a tendency to think in extremes without qualification. Do you see? I mean, if if God had chosen, he could have chosen to give us his written word through 21st century Americans. Does anybody want that? I mean, it would have been, there would have, it would sounded like this. Well, like, I don't know. I mean, it's sort of like, kind of, well, it's like this. It's like when, like, I mean, that's what we have gotten, I'm afraid. And everything would have been so clear and so nuanced, we would have ended up going, like, I'm not, like, sure what, like, you're saying, like. But instead, in his sovereign providence, he gives us his written word through Semitic languages in Semitic cultures. I read elsewhere where Semitic cultures tend to speak in primary colors. That is, bold, clear colors without any mixture or fading. And I suspect that it may well be that God gave us his word in Semitic languages, at least in part, because those languages and those cultures and those generations used language in such a way to make it nearly impossible to domesticate the truth with vague, unclear, overly overly nuanced language. And so Jesus' words hit us with great strength. His words don't allow us to domesticate God's truth. He won't let us avoid the radical character of the summons that is being issued to us when Jesus says, follow me. And so these words unsettle us and they force us to ask questions like, am I following Jesus? Am I a disciple of Christ? We know, of course, that the Lord does not demand our self-destruction any more than he requires that we actually hate any member of our family. But there is a way in which the love of life, the love of this world, and even the love of people in this world can and oftentimes does form into a detestable idolatry in our hearts. And it happens when we come to regard our lives in this world our happiness in this moment, our comfort, our name, our reputation, and our relationships as more important, of greater treasure, of more precious than God himself and the promise of eternal life with him. And lest we miss the terrible mistake of that and the death that lies in that idolatry, Jesus says that we must hate our life. We must deny ourselves when everything and everyone around us tells us that you must 
serve yourself. My very first church where I served as a senior pastor. I was in my 30s. And of course I knew everything. And I remember the first time I dealt with a case of adultery. And um, a faithful family in our church, young family with two or three young children. And um, It was on Father's Day. And I was driving to our, we had three morning worship services at our church in Kansas. And I was driving to church that Sunday morning early on Father's Day. And I get a call from this man who had just found out minutes before that that his wife was having an affair committing adultery let's use the word and um, of course he was broken and I remember setting up an appointment with him and then setting up an appointment with her and um, she told me she said I'm sorry he's hurt but I have to worry about my happiness now and I thought there it is there's the old lie of the serpent right there If, if what I feel is my happiness now trumps what my husband needs and trumps the promises I made and trumps what my children need from their mommy and daddy, then I have to do that because I've been seeing someone and, and a counselor told me, you have to start worrying about your happiness now. And beloved, that is... A, a lie from hell. I'm, please, please don't misunderstand. I'm not saying if you're in an abusive relationship, stay there because you shouldn't be happy. You all know I'm not saying that, right? Am I following Jesus? Am I am I living in that self that blessed? beautiful self-forgetfulness that issues forth in blessing for others? Am I living in that? Do I live in such a way that the world, that my unbelieving friends would look at me and think, well, he doesn't seem to care about himself enough. Have I come to treasure the life to come to the extent that I grip this life and its trinkets loosely? Well, I I don't want you to miss where all of this begins and how all of this is carried forward because I want to be reminded again about that one request from the Greeks in verse 21. Sir, we would see Jesus. Take us to Jesus. We want to see Jesus because that's where the Christian life begins But that's not only where the Christian life begins. That's how the Christian life advances. And that's where the Christian life steps into eternal life. I would see Jesus. I want to see Jesus. We want to see the One who is Lord. We want to see the Lord who raises to life the dead. We want to see the One who died for our sins. We want to know Him. We want to follow Him. We want to see Him. And beloved, if you're a struggling disciple like I am, go back to that. Oh Lord, I want to see Jesus. If you've been a skeptic, 
and God is working on your heart, start there. I want to see Jesus. I want to believe in Jesus. And if you're a senior saint who's walked faithfully with the Lord for 40 or 50 years, let that continue to be the song of your heart. I want to see Jesus. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Now, our Father and our God, we ask for your help so that your word would remain with us. Lord, put it in our hearts to want to see you, to want to believe you. And then, Lord, strengthen us by your power to walk with you, to follow you, to be disciples. Oh God, let us not give to the world one more example of flimsy religious sentimentality. Let us show the world what disciples of Jesus look like. We ask that humbly that you would do that in us, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.